was good jazz fans welcome to jabber jazz your home for more fan-driven ad-free utah jazz basketball talk with an analytical emphasis i'm your host adam bushman i'm so stoked for this podcast ready to dive into three awesome topics first we're going to talk about trader danny's dilemma jazz have been amazing to start this year even despite back-to-back losses Danny kind of needs to decide where the Jazz need to go from here. We'll touch on that subject. Uh, I also have an interesting idea about how the Jazz might upgrade the roster. Uh, So we'll get into that. And finally, I want to wrap up with five kind of lukewarm takes about this Utah Jazz team. So we're going to get into all those things. But first, if you like what we're doing, please consider subscribing to the podcast here on YouTube or in your podcatcher, uh, following us on social media. We're over on Twitter at Jabber underscore Jazz, leaving a review or comment, or snagging some merch on our store. All of those things help keep this podcast and the videos on YouTube coming each week. Well, without further ado, let's Jabber Jazz. Alright, so let's talk about Trader Danny's dilemma. Okay, the, the term Trader Danny comes from all of the trades that he's done, and uh, particularly those that have propelled teams like the Boston Celtics of old and this year's Jazz to a promising future uh, by dealing star players and, and moving the franchise forward. So the Jazz are 10 and 5, and with every win, Uh, we approach decision time more and more quickly. And that decision is is really interesting. We'll get to them in a second. Currently, 538 projects the number seven odds. So the the seventh best odds for the number one pick to be 36 wins. So you need to be 36 wins or under to get top seven odds. Okay, so the Jazz, to be at 36 wins the rest of the way, they would need to win 39% of their games. Not really a high benchmark. Not at all. Uh, In fact, if you want the 14th best odds, or if you want to be in the NBA lottery at all, the Jazz are going to need to go 46% uh, win percentage the rest of the way. And they need to get to 41 wins. Okay, so it's, it's uh, it's not inconceivable that, uh, that the Jazz could be out of the lottery with their own pick and substantially far away from what I kind of found a, uh, a, to be you know, a likely and good range, 3-7, to seven, for the Jazz in the draft. Okay, so the, Danny Ainge, he has to decide where he wants to go with this roster, and I've kind of uh, identified the, the three options. Okay, you can trade the Vets and hit that tank, uh, you can steady as she goes, just keep the roster the same way it is and, and just ride it out the whole season. Uh, or you can make a move to chase contention. Danny and the front office are going to have to weigh all these options because at some point there's a point of no return. And, uh, you know, the Jazz, I feel like, are fast moving toward that decision time, uh, especially with every, every win that they, uh, that they tally. Uh, the front office is really going to have to decide what they want to do. So let's dig into these three scenarios and, and really kind of evaluate uh, where we stand now and how fast we may outpace that decision. So the first option that we identified was to trade the vets, hit that tank. 
And some of the concerns that I and others kind of have are, are the vibes too good? Uh, does that create issues culturally if you move on from these guys? Conley has talked about wanting to stay with Utah Jazz. doesn't really want to uproot his family. Uh, Jordan Clarkson has become kind of the cultural icon and face of the franchise, especially with this transition. Larry Markkinen has talked about, you know, the, the trade noise and, and hitting the tank and how, you know, after every win they, they get frustrated and motivated by that talk and, and they want to go out and prove people wrong. So, you know, that, that's something to weigh here. Um, if you trade the vets and hit the tank, you know, do you mess with some of that good culture kind of stuff? And um, it, it's an interesting component. One that, uh, you know, being maybe a, a more analytical type person, I, I'm not, I, I guess I don't naturally have a pulse on that, uh, on that subject. But the second concern that I have for, for this scenario, trading the vets and hitting the tank, is are there deals to be made? You know, we heard in the offseason that there were issues that teams had with Mike Conley, uh, especially that partial guarantee of $14 million next year. They're not really excited to take that money on. And sure, we've got some reports that the markets for Clarkson and Beasley are there. Teams want to trade for them. But are they really willing to trade positive assets, you know, positive value? Are they willing to give up a pick or, you know, a recent 2023 um, player? from the draft. Uh, for example, you know, we've heard that the Milwaukee Bucks are interested in Jordan Clarkson. Are they going to include uh, Milwaukee's 2023 first round pick, Marjan Bocamp? I don't know. But uh, that's, that's the type of positive value you'd be looking to move off of these guys. I think Clarkson, Beasley, Conley, all of these guys have more than proven they're, they're deserving of even a protected first round pick, uh, let alone not getting any picks or just, you know, salary matching. I, I don't think that's what Danny wants. Like, clearly we're not at the point where we're attaching assets to move off of guys, and we're probably not even to the point where, you know, with a Bogdanovich Olenek trade where we're just exchanging salary. Uh, I don't think we're there either. And most of the time it feels like it takes a while to make these deals. So, you know, you've got some eligibility dates, you know, to worry about. Here in December, you know, we've got three to four weeks. Here in December, a lot of players who signed contracts or made extensions will be eligible to be traded. And at that point, you know, teams start engaging deals. You don't see many deals happen in October and November because of some of those things. And so by that point, are we at the point of no return, right? Uh, is it going to be the type of thing that by the time you can trade these vets and you've got these deals, by that point, does it say, hey, to get in the lottery, you need to win 25% of your games the rest of the way? Have we gone too far at that point? The last consideration are finances and the fan base's excitement. You know, everybody's really, really excited talking about the, the team, and uh, a lot of people really want to push and keep this this squad together and do you disrupt that when i say finances if if the jazz just start you know selling off the vets and you know do you end up having to take a little extra salary uh, does that send you closer to the tax jazz clearly don't want to go over the tax but then furthermore you know you just did this rebrand that uh, that you want to sell and that you want to make money off of and you know you're you're pushing for a new tv deal next year you know with someone so a lot of those things, you know, 
the Jazz were unexpectedly good this year, does staying good appeal more? And, and that's kind of the, uh, the, second, the second scenario we're going to dive into here in a second. But then just the all-star game. Okay? The Jazz, by all accounts, could have an all-star in Larry Markinen. Uh, which was unexpected, and two, could just have a really good team generating a lot of buzz by All-Star time. And, and I think that's something that uh, Ryan Smith and, and the Jazz front office definitely might value. So those are the concerns with trading the vets and hitting the tank. The second scenario is that you just ride out the season with this current squad. You don't make any moves to make the team better, but you also don't make any moves to limit the talent and therefore increase your odds at you know a really good pick and the concerns there is that we really aren't a contender so if you're writing this out you're writing this out with the knowledge that most likely we're in the high play-in 7-8 seed there's an outside chance we sneak into you know the real playoffs and we have a first round series no matter what you're in that 5-6 seed but no matter what i think you're looking into a uh, a somewhat competitive, somewhat blowout type first round, right? Where you know you're probably matched up with Dallas or Denver uh, or Golden State, and yeah, you might win a game or two, and uh, you're gonna have two games here at uh, at at Vivint Arena. No matter what, you'll be able to sell a bunch of tickets. Jazz fans will be super excited, um, but that's really your ceiling because we don't have a number one guy. Uh, we lack rim def- rim deterrence, right? When people get there, we're we're uh, you know they get there a lot, and as long as Walker Kessler's off the court, which is the majority of the time, we have a tough time limiting the efficiency at the rim. Also, scouting is catching up. We just saw it against Philadelphia and Washington. You know, the book is starting to get out on the Jazz on how you defend them. And the Jazz are going to have to, you know, figure that out. But when you're in a, in a situation where, hey, it's been over half a season now, everybody in the league knows how to go about you. You know, now you're going to have to make second and third adjustments. And once you get into a playoff series, you know, that, those kind of adjustments will, will need to be made game to game. And there's going to be fewer opportunities to do so, uh, especially when you don't have, uh, you know, the top guy. And injuries are inevitable. Okay? Mike Conley, he's gonna he's gonna miss some time with with something, um, and that that's that's really going to limit our ceiling because, or our regular season ceiling. Because as many have pointed out, Conley is this glue. He's this thread that's holding everything together. And you're missing him. You're missing what has made us a really good clutch team, what's kept us in games late. So that's my concern, that we, that we really aren't a contender and we're really, we're really going into the rest of the season just knowing that, hey, best-case scenario, we're, we're in the playoffs for sure, but you know, we're, we maybe win a game or two in a playoff series against you know, some of these just fantastic teams. Also, Danny talked a lot about how, hey, this has been a winning franchise for forever, but it's really been like regular season winning. We really haven't had dominant dominant playoff stretches and, and even finals contending years in these past two decades. But we've kind of always been competitive, always been winning. 
and he's like, you know, we want to, we want to kind of blow up that expectation and and really really do it right and chase the real goal, a championship. And it, if you just ride this season out, for me that kind of just accepts, hey, yeah, we're we're middle class bound, okay. Um, we're often right outside the contender class, but we're also never first in line for the top incoming talent. And, and, and that's unfortunate. I do believe this is the most likely outcome. Uh, I do think that, uh, that while the trade markets have improved for our guys, I, I do think that we're, we're unlikely to be seeing uh, the trade market improve to such an extent that we can get the value we'd ideally like for these veterans that would offset the opportunity cost of riding the season out and you know being good for the all-star game maybe having an all-star representative in larry markinen uh maybe making the playoffs etc so i do think this is the most likely scenario and with minnesota being toxic and brooklyn being combustible and philadelphia being jekyll and hyde uh, it, it gives me the impression that the jazz might see those other two picks as you know, being close enough to the lottery that uh, that in the aggregate between all the three picks, we have enough ammo to move up in the draft if we want, or to make all three selections that we're happy with with the players we get. Um, I just think that there's a lot of equity right now with the organization and the fan base if you let it ride out. Um, so I think that's the most likely scenario. But that's only a scenario two. Let's talk about scenario three. The last option, I think, is that you make a move to chase contention. And this one is interesting because it also has, has its concerns. So the Jazz have all mid-tier guys, right? We have a bunch of good guys. We have a bunch of you know, top 150 to top 50 players, right? We, we don't have any top 50 players, Um I mean, Larry Markinen has, has probably proved himself to be in that top 50 to, to 30 range. And Mike Conley is, is probably just outside that top 50 range. But we've got a lot of those mid-tier guys. We've got a lot of good, positive players. But if you're looking to upgrade, what you really need is a top-tier player. You really need a top 30 player, a great player, and somebody who is going to kind of fill in all those margins and be that guy when everything kind of comes down to it, when you know you really need to win, and when you really need to push through all of those all of those playoff series and, and really contend, and who out there is available? Who really kind of fits this bill of a top thirty player uh, who's got experience and and you know who is available and all this kind of stuff, right? You know we've talked about Kevin Durant, and honestly that that is an option. Because Brooklyn's combustible, you you wait until they're vulnerable again and, and, and want to, you know, uh, are, are open to trade him. Maybe he makes another request, and after such a season, his value is probably tanked a little bit more. And you come in with a godfather offer. Maybe, maybe that happens. Um, you know, there's been talk about Luka Doncic, how there's, there's really a an expectation that the the Dallas Mavericks need to start really pushing because time is ticking on Doncic being happy in in uh, the in Dallas but most of these are going to require trade request okay i mean you don't just make 
Giannis Antetokounmpo available or Steph Curry um, or these guys. And in the case of, of some young players like Shea Gilgis Alexander and Brandon Ingram and Jalen Brown, like none of those teams are in a position where they'd want to trade good young stars for assets. Like they're trying to take their assets to to trade and complement their their good young stars. Like that's that's the whole point. So it's it's going to be a real interesting kind of mix to try to figure out how to chase contention. I don't think in years past I've talked about Harrison Barnes or John Collins or some of these guys to fill out the Jazz roster. But those are, again, are more mid-tier guys, and that's not an upgrade for us. Um, we got to we got to upgrade with a great player. And the real question is, can the Jazz execute fast enough, right? We've talked about how there's there are these um, December and January, um, I guess, eligibility dates, you know, for uh, players who recently signed uh, who can get traded. And then you've got the February trade deadline. And if you don't get them done then, then you're looking at making a deal in the offseason. And that's probably what the Jazz are going to do. Wait until the offseason, fully see what they have, and make moves then. But if you really want to chase contention this season, time's kind of ticking in a way, right? And if you make a deal right at the deadline, day before or day of, most of the time, you don't hit your stride with that new player you acquired, especially especially a star, until the next season. So if the Jazz really want to hit their stride and, and like chase contention this year, not not waste this year, you, you kind of need to make a move probably you know a handful of weeks before the trade deadline. So those are my concerns with making a, a chase contention move right now. Um, who, who do we go after? Can we do it fast enough? And are you able to balance this 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 scenario of of you know preserving our future, right? Not going, not not bankrupting our future, but then also, but then also, you know, capitalizing on what we have right now. It's it's an interesting mix, and and I don't have you know the right answer. Other than I think the most likely scenario out of those three is that the Jazz ride out this season completely and take a full year to see what they have, come what may, and they reevaluate the direction they want to go come the offseason. So in the last segment, we talked about how the, if the Jazz want to make a move for contention, they really need to upgrade. They need to go from a bunch of mid-tier guys to a top-tier guy, you know, a, a real star and somebody who who can be what the Jazz have lacked this season, uh, which is that uh, real true star who can propel you to playoff victories uh, and who can shoulder a lot of that self-creation burden, uh, who's been there, done that, that type of guy. So I have an interesting idea for how the Jazz can upgrade. How you know a, a player to target to take the Jazz from a bunch of mid-tier guys to a real pecking order of a star, you know, three or four mid-tier guys, and then a still solid, a solid compilation of players uh, in the aggregate to where you have a, a you know an incredibly solid, diverse, and 
and balanced uh, playoff roster. And for this, uh, for this upgrade to work, we have to look at certain things. You know, we're going to need to look at someone who's under contract for a while because, like, like we mentioned in, in uh, the previous segment of the podcast, that y- you, as much as we want to make that trade for this year to chase contention this year, uh, you also can't have that, uh, that player you know, ready to walk out the door next, next, uh, this coming offseason. You also want some playoff and finals experience, right? Somebody who's who's been there, done that, and can you know take what is mostly a big group of guys who haven't done it before, especially haven't done it in their roles before. Uh, I think you also want a history of a top fifteen guy, um, not somebody who is borderline, right? We had a borderline star like that in Donovan Mitchell. And I think, you know, with this roster, if you're really chasing contention, if you're really making that trade, you want somebody who's had a history of being in those rankings. Uh, You also probably need somebody who fits this culture and identity, right? We've, we've had this team that is really, really clicked. There's a lot of chemistry and there's, they're building this winning culture and there's an identity to the way we play. And I think you want to preserve that. Uh, I think you also need to address areas of weakness and fits positionally. Uh, there are holes in the roster, and I think you need to keep those in mind when making a trade. I, I don't think that uh, I don't think that you just take anybody and you make it work uh, because again, the Jazz weren't constructed. Um, we weren't constructed this way. We, we didn't want to pair all of these guys together. It happened organically just with how we made the Mitchell and Gobert trades. And so with this interesting mix, we didn't craft intentionally. We have to intentionally fit a star into that. And then we also need someone who's actually available. So what's, so what's my idea? Who's the player that I would target in this kind of an upgrade situation? Well, the answer is Jimmy Butler. And here's the trade. So you send Butler to the Utah Jazz, and the Jazz send Colin Sexton, Malik Beasley, and approximately four first-round picks to the Miami Heat. And what gets interesting here is that the Miami Heat uh, right now are about $100,000 away from the tax, and next year are a good amount in the tax once the Tyler Hero extension kicks in, uh, and, and they still have the Kyle Lowry money on the books, etc. Okay, so Miami would get comfortably away from the tax this year and would be able to get comfortably uh, away from the tax, maybe even under the salary cap uh, next year. So there's a bunch of financial ramifications for why Miami would do it. But they've been pretty disappointing to start this year, right? They're 7-7. Seven and seven. They just eked out a win over Phoenix. Um, Bam Adebayo and Kyle Lowry, they've been hot and cold, not just this year, but last year. Ever since going to the finals, they've kind of been disappointing. Uh, They're starting to get to this point where, again, like I said with the finances, they just committed a ton of money to Tyler Hero. They're paying Bam Adebayo, Jimmy Butler, Kyle Lowry. Is it about time that uh, this this core is kind of running out of their out of their timeline that uh, that things have passed them by. And I'm not the only one who's thought about this, frankly. Bill Simmons on his podcast last weekend, he asked the question, are the Heat done? Like, yeah, they're probably going to win quite a few games this year. But does that translate to playoff success? 
right? Are they going to be a near tax team? Potentially a tax team if they make a deadline deal. Are they are they a team that's that's you know clearly demonstrating their contenders? They're not in Zach Lowe's inner circle, and they're not demonstrating you know playoff and contender type type uh, habits and and performance. Right? There's a lot of holes on the roster. And, and there's a lot of people playing under their capabilities. And so that's kind of why Miami would do it. They say, okay, our current iteration isn't working. Just like we did last year with the Utah Jazz. We won a ton of games. Like, why would we break it up? Because it was clear that iteration was done. It was capped out. And, and maybe, you know, Miami comes to that, you know, that similar conclusion. And Jimmy's not really available. Uh, that was one of the things we said, hey, you, you need someone who's actually available. He's not really available. I don't think the Miami Heat are really calling people up and saying, hey, what, what would you offer for Jimmy Butler? But what I do think is just as Gobert wasn't available last year, Utah wasn't calling out teams and saying, hey, what would, what would you take for Gobert? Uh, they were accepting some calls, but just as Gobert wasn't available, but Minnesota came in with that, that massive offer, I think there's a shot that you could do the same thing with with Miami and Jimmy Butler. If you came in there and just said, hey, we just secured Colin Sexton on a four-year, super, super crazy good deal at, at the $16 million, uh, per year, I believe it is, uh, 16 to 18 per year. We just secured him in an awesome deal, and you're going to have full control over him for four years as the salary cap's going up. Tremendous deal. Malik Beasley stellar this season and you know he's got a team option next year which will allow you financial flexibility if you want all of a sudden you've got sexton uh tyler hero bam Adebayo as kind of three young cornerstones and you know you you're able to decide at that point okay you know what maybe we we trade kyle lowry maybe we can send him over to the los angeles lakers and, and get a get an asset and if you're bringing in four first round picks for a team like miami if you're able to swing cap space by um you know uh, making some additional moves and miami's one of those teams who they they manipulate the uh they manipulate the finances of the league and, and the, uh, the salary cap very, very well. And so they can clear some cap space. And with all those picks, you know, they have the ammo to make, make a serious trade uh, down the line. Right? Maybe they say, hey, in one year, we're going to count on Luka Doncic you know, being available via trade. And with the picks we're getting from Utah, with most of our own picks outside of you know, one we got to convey to Oklahoma City, uh, and with some of the this young core that we have, right, Colin, Colin Sexton, we can move later on too. You know, that's a lot of ammo to make a Luka Doncic trade later on, or or whomever, uh, or or attack players in free agency as well. So I do think that uh, while Jimmy's not technically you know available, Jazz could kind of pull a Minnesota in a way and say, hey, we're going to make Jimmy available by the type of offer we're, we're going at, we're going to get. So why does Jimmy Butler make sense? Okay, this is a guy who in the past has kind of been a culture wrecker. He's kind of been, you know, a a real real blow-up type personality. But why does he make sense for the Jazz as an upgrade option? Well, first, he's under contract for three more years. And suddenly this gives you a three-year window. Okay, by the 2026 offseason, 
which is the year the Jazz will have the uh, Utah, Cleveland, Minnesota pick swap year, which the Jazz want to keep that pick, you know, the Jazz will have an opportunity to transition again. At that point, you're probably not extending Jimmy Butler unless it's a super team-friendly deal. But now you've got a three-year window. You got a three-year win window where you say, "Hey, we've just we've just landed our star. We're going to see how this plays out, and we know that for the next couple off seasons, we just need to tinker uh, a couple a couple things, um, you know, to remain contenders and, and really push and try to see if we can't uh, nab ourselves a championship." Okay, he's got playoff and finals experience. He's got 97 career post postseason games under his belt. Right, he was just in that 2020 bubble finals. Okay, the guy, the guy's a top 15 player. Um, Sports Illustrated's top 100. Last year he ranked 11th. This year he ranked 10th. So he's that historic top 15 guy. Uh, this season and last, if you combine the two, uh, he's at 21 points, six rebounds, nearly six assists on positive uh, adjusted true shooting. Um, he's at 18 true shooting attempts per game. Where does that kind of fit? How, how does that uh, compare to the Jazz and the league? Well, Larry Markinen's at 14 true shooting attempts per game. Okay, so that's one of the things that is limiting the Jazz. We we have a lot of people taking a fair amount of shots, and with a true contending roster, you need someone who's who's dominating more than 14. Okay. In context for the rest of the league, Luka Doncic is leading the NBA at 25 true shooting attempts per game. I think you have a real tough time taking a Luka Doncic 25 true shooting attempts, uh, a Luka Doncic, a Trey Young 25 true shooting attempts, putting them on a roster with the guys we have, and kind of figuring out that shot al shot allocation. That's going to take a lot of time. But you take Jimmy Butler, who's you using uh, who's taking four true shooting attempts per game more than uh, than Lauren Markinen. You slot him in, and you reduce the true shooting attempts by Sexton and Beasley. All of a sudden, I don't think that's uh, much of an issue to figure out at all. I think that's very natural and organic. Uh, he fits the team's culture and identity, and this one's a little interesting because in previous iterations of the Jazz, I don't think we would have said this, but with Will Hardy coming in. What did Will Hardy preach? He said, hey, we preach communication, toughness, hard nose, get after it, super conditioning. Those are the things that, that um, Jimmy Butler was preaching in Minnesota when uh, you know, he, he was with all the third stringers and beat the starter, beat the rest of the starters, and he's just like, and he, you know, he was criticizing people. And that's why he went to Miami, be, wanted to get traded to Miami because of that, that culture fit there. Um, I, I think Hardy has brought the Jazz culture of, you know, defense, disruption, getting out on the break, sharing the ball. I think that embodies a lot of what attracted Jimmy Butler to Miami, frankly. So I think he really fits the the team's culture and identity. Okay, he's also an elite scorer. Okay, he's consistently positive uh, adjusted true shooting percentage. Okay, so he's consistently above league average. He doesn't take a lot of threes. He doesn't make a lot of threes, but he's an elite playmaker. Okay, so over the past four seasons, during his time in Miami, he's been over twenty five percent assist rate. Where does that compare? Mike Conley has a career average 
So he's just under Conley's career average for assist rate. Okay, the dude passes the ball, he's getting others involved, he generates a lot of attention defensively, and he's finding others. I think that totally fits what the Jazz need to do. Uh, also, he's got terrific size, he's, got, uh, he's a terrific perimeter defender. I mean, you saw it in the game last night over Phoenix. 100% locked up Devin Booker on, on those final two plays. Just locked him up in a way that... Frankly, nobody on the Jazz right now is capable of, and neither has anybody been capable of um, during that uh, Rudy, uh, Donovan, Conley, and Bogdanovich era. Okay, and so uh, he's always going to go out there and work extra hard. Um, he's he is that dog personality, right? He is that kind of enforcer type person. He's not going to take you know crap from nobody. And I think we need all those kind of things. Uh, he also addresses those areas of weakness and positional fits that we talked about. Okay, so he slots right in there at, at your number two, right next to Conley uh, and, uh, and Markkanen. Um, he's got mid-range scoring. That's something that you really need in the playoffs, okay? Teams are going to be hyper-focused defensively at the rim and on the three-point line. They're also going to you know start switching things in the playoffs. Okay, adding Jimmy Butler makes it so that we're more switch proof because Jimmy Butler can go ISO. He can get to the mid range. He can get to the foul line. He's an excellent uh, player to draw fouls. All of a sudden your rotation looks kind of like the following. Mike Conley at the one, Jimmy Butler at the two, Larry Markinen at the three, Jared Vanderbilt at the four, and Kelly Olenek at the five. Then you have your bench as Horton Tucker, uh, Clarkson, Gay, and Kessler. And maybe Abaji with some some uh, some more opportunity. Maybe he can show some some flashes of some some things and start to develop a bit more. But that is a serious serious lineup. That is a serious lineup with three point shooting, with you know mid range prowess, um, and then on defense you've got uh, oh and, and and then just the ability to cut um, and pass right. Uh, you, you add Butler, who's this prolific a passer, to what Kelly Olynyk and Mike Conley are already doing, and that gets to be serious. And then off the bench, you know, we've got some good size. Um, I think the gay piece is still a little bit of a weak point. Maybe Abaji can can figure some things out. Ultimately, I think that does does kind of put you in the contender class with what we've seen this year. All of a sudden, instead of trying to force Larry Markkinen to be that number one guy. All of a sudden, he's a clear number two guy, but isn't being isn't being overshadowed to such an extent uh, uh, in terms of offensive usage by Jimmy Butler. In a way, like I said, he's not actually available. But with Miami starting kind of slow and disappointing, uh, they've committed all that money to Bam and Hero, um, and they still have Lowry for next year. Uh, you're Miami. If you've got picks and you got cap space, you can do a ton, a ton of damage. So this is my idea. If you want to upgrade, I think Jimmy Butler's the play. Okay, there's so many players out there you could go after who are in that same mold, but it's going to require those players demanding a trade to even get your foot in the door. Okay, um, and then there's a bunch of players who are kind of on that younger ascending type Donovan Mitchell timeline. Where I don't think you're getting those guys uh, because 
those are the types of, of players that young teams on the rise want to keep. There, there's no reason to for them to trade them at all. Not for the promise of something better in the future. Uh, so there's absolutely risks with this deal. Right? Jimmy Butler, uh, I do believe his personality fits a hardy this roster group. I do. Uh, but, you know, it's not a sure thing. Uh, he's also had injury woes the past few years, right? He's he's rarely played, uh, you know, 80% plus of the games uh, each season. Okay, so there there is a component there. And, you know, he is making a lot of money and he's trending into his, his, his 30s when, frankly, you do start to slow down. But this is the situation, I think, that really complements that type of, of a player um, who's not overly, uh, you know, uh, who's, who doesn't have a crazy high usage, who, you know, I think would get along just fantastically with Hardy, who can come in with people who share the ball, all kind of galvanizing offensively, and he can just be a slightly lead guy who's been there, done that. Uh, I think he fits our need for free throw uh, frequency. I think he fits our need for mid-range prowess. I think he fits the need for that lockdown defender that uh, that we need. Um, Jazz have discovered we got a lot of number twos. We got a ton of threes, three, number three and number four type players. We need that number one. And I think a combination of Sexton, Beasley, if they demanded Vanderbilt, I think you do it. Um, but obviously that's going to reduce the number of picks we send out. But then all of a sudden, I think I think you're able to land that guy without giving up marking in um, and, and preserving enough of the rest of the guys uh, that that it does vault you into that championship contention range immediately. And then over the all, off seasons, we can we can figure out what uh, what's missing. But the Jazz make this deal even with four first round picks. The Jazz are still positive in draft capital. We still have more picks than we would have if we had just kept all of our normal picks and, and, and no trades. Uh, we're still positive. And, and that's something that, uh, that was made possible by trading Donovan Rudy two stars, getting a star back in one of those trades, Laurie Markkinen, and all of those picks and sending some of those picks to get Jimmy. We're still going to be positive draft-wise. So there's no concern that we're – I think this – this walks that tightrope of chasing contention without bankrupting the future. So that's my idea. Uh, send me a send me a message on on Twitter at jabber underscore jazz. What what you think of of the deal? But I think this is probably one of the most re- more realistic, uh, plausible, and kind of balances everything we need in this kind of a fashion. All right, we're going to talk five lukewarm takes. Hot takes are a bit overrated, frankly. Um, so we're going to do kind of lukewarm takes. Uh, hopefully you'll agree with all of these, kind of the idea of being lukewarm. Um, but ultimately this is just a good opportunity to kind of share what's top of my mind um, coming out of the two losses against Philadelphia and Washington, but also the awesome win over Atlanta and that uh, back-to-back Clippers-Lakers uh, wins, all that kind of good stuff. So the first take is that Walker Kessler needs more minutes. He needs 22 minutes a game, approximately. Uh, Hardy currently has him at 15. Analytic has been really good. But Walker Kessler's earned the minutes. He just has. 
Yes, he, he still makes some mistakes, but Olenek is making a lot of mistakes, okay? Olenek is number two in the NBA in foul rate, okay? Uh, so Walker Kessler brings a lot of unique uh, unique things that address our weaknesses, right? Rim deterrence and, and um, you know, rim protection. Uh, he also, you know, is is a good rebounder and, you know, he is in the right spots at the right times usually. Uh, he's earned more time, and I and I think the team would be better off if we said, "Hey, Kelly, we're going to reduce your minutes a bit, but this way you can go full out all of those minutes. No worries about getting into foul trouble because you know in 26 minutes of playing time, you're rarely going to foul out. Just go hard with everything you got." You know, give us everything for those 26 minutes. Walker Kessler, you come in for the 22 minutes. You bring a different pace. You bring different set of skills, and you address some of those weaknesses. Uh, I, I think that not only has he earned it, but the Jazz would probably be a better team if they did so. We are getting just annihilated at the rim, and um, it's it's creating a a real weak point where as that scouting report starts to circulate throughout the league, Jazz is going to become more and more susceptible to it. I think the next adjustment uh, that Hardy needs to make is by distributing the center minutes uh, more evenly. Not perfectly even, but more evenly between Olenek and Kessler. I would probably shoot for 26, 27 minutes a game for Kelly Olenek, 21, 22 minutes a game for Walker Kessler. He's earned it, but not only that, he really is providing some unique strengths for our weaknesses. And those weaknesses are some of the primary ones that have shown up the last couple games. So here's my second take. Colin Sexton's a better player than third-year Colin. He is not, he's not at the volume, right? He's not playing as much. He's not scoring as much, right? Um, and, and he's not assisting as much. But those are all function. Those are all functions of playing time. And, and frankly, you know, even even myself, we always talk about getting back to that level. Uh, I've I've done it plenty of times. Getting back to that third year uh, level that he was at. And honestly, like yeah, we want that production, but we don't want it with those habits. Uh, those habits that Colin did. They were habits that kept him inefficient. That uh, didn't help the team win. And frankly, there were habits that you know gave him blinders uh, to the rest of the team, and we don't want that. I think we'd prefer his production now with better habits, and I think as that develops, the production might increase a bit, but really the better habits are going to be there, and those are going to be better disciplined defensively. You know, we've seen a lot of better disciplined moments from Colin Sexton than we even did at the start of this year, let alone third year Colin. Uh, his approach to efficiency, he's taking more threes, he's getting to the line more than he way ever did in that third year. Um, he's much more active on the glass, and he has a lot more accountability from his, from his teammates and coach than he ever had in his third year. It's still not great, but he is developing, and what's good is that we're seeing a lot better process, and we're seeing a lot better habits, and as time goes on, I think those will... Uh, those will aid in that production getting to where we want. It, in a sixth-man role, it may never get to the point that he was at the, in his third season. But as long as they come with better habits, he's a better player. And, and I'm 100% okay with that. And frankly, 
you know, his his current contract was going to be highway robbery if he got back to the volume production that he was at his third year. Uh, his salary right now is more akin to a sixth man role, frankly. And if he's able to be at 75% of that production, more or less, with much better habits, uh, I think that's equally uh, as big of a, a steal relative to his contract. So here's the third take. The collective approach that we've seen the Jazz take this year of, hey, we're all going to be kind of a collective unit and you know, no, there's no one person dominating on offense, but hey, Clarkson takes his turns, Conley, Malik, Larry Markinen, etc. That collective approach offensively 100% works in the regular season. You can be a really good team. And this Jazz team, honestly, is starting to show a lot of signs that are akin to the pre-Jokic De uh, Denver Nuggets with Ty Lawson and Danilo Gallinari and J.R. Smith and uh, Kenneth Fareed. You know, that team didn't have a star. They were just a big collection of really good mid-tier guys. They ended up being the number two seed lost in the first round of the playoffs. This approach really works in the regular season. You can win a lot of games, but it doesn't really work in the playoffs. So our top player, Laurie, is far below the usage of other stars. I mean, we talked about it. Okay, Jimmy Butler, who isn't a high usage player by any means, but is the top star on his team, he's at four true shooting attempts per game more than Laurie Markkinen. Okay, so that just kind of shows that we, we don't have that top tier guy. And I think you really need that top tier guy. Um, you need, uh, you need, you need somebody who come the playoffs, this model is going to work where you need a guy to punish, um, loading up on a star, someone who will, Hey, if you're going to play everyone straight up, we're going to burn you with our star. And when you decide to send help or scheme against the star, they can now punish you and other players can start to capitalize. So it can't be a star and scrubs, right? Because then they'll load up on the star. Scrubs can't do anything. But it also can't be just all mid-tier guys who, um, who when everybody stays home, everybody's locked in, that scouting report is zeroed in on you, all of a sudden, you know, you can't do anything. And we really saw that in the Philadelphia and Washington games. And, you know, the Jazz are going to have some adjustments for it as the season goes on. And we're going to play some more bad teams. And it's going to, this model's going to work for us in the regular season. But come the playoffs, it's not going to work. In the regular season, any, any night someone can produce. And we've got limited scattering reports, limited preparation. But once a team can zero in and they have a lot of time to prepare and uh, they're able to learn your tendencies. Uh, the most likely playoff matches we have are Dallas with Luka, Phoenix with Booker, and Denver with Jokic. All of those guys can manipulate our team, and when we load up on them, the rest of their guys are going to be able to capitalize. They're not a star with scrubs. okay? And the Jazz need to be more akin to that model. And until we are, I think we can be a really good regular season team, but again, we're going to be capped at that uh, at a competitive, if not blowout, um, first round series in which we lose. Uh, and and that's kind of my my perspective on the year is that if we continue to ride this out, you know, we're going to have a good season, but we're capped. We really are.
Okay, my fourth lukewarm take is that the opponent three-point shooting isn't that crazy. Okay, Zach Lowe talked about it on his podcast a few times that, oh, hey, teams aren't really making their threes against the Jazz. And, and they aren't, but it's not as crazy as a lot of people have kind of pointed it out to be. So let's dig into it. So the Jazz are allowing 32.5% uh, opponent three-point percentage. 32.5. Last year's low was 33.9. Okay, so if you look at that, if the Jazz were to match last year's low from the Boston Celtics, 33.9%, opponents would have had to make six more threes. Six more threes over 15 games. Yeah, maybe that swings one more game to a loss. But honestly, someone has to be the best team in the league. Someone has to be the number one team in defending or, or, or blowing up opponent threes. And so far, it's not blatantly out of control, out of the ordinary. So let's evaluate the process real quick. Let's look at, the, uh, let's look at some data points to say, how are the Jazz doing process-wise? And, and we can evaluate if the Jazz are, are on the right track, if such a model is sustainable of low three-point percentage. Okay, we, we've determined that they're not too far off last year's low. Now we can evaluate, hey, is it reasonable to expect the Jazz to be in that, you know, that bottom five of lowest opponent three-point percentage? So if we look, the Jazz are allowing the lowest opponent frequency. Okay, if I only gave you you know, two shots at a three-pointer, and I said, hey, get to 50%, and I only ever gave you two shots every single night, it's going to be tough to, to get to 50%. You're going to need a lot of games to get to 50%, because, you know, especially if it's a good defensive team, you might have a lot of 0 for 2 nights. You're going to have a lot of 2 for 2 nights, but it's going to take a lot of games for you to, to even out. And I think that's what you're kind of seeing here. If you see a lot of three-pointers per night, there's a lot of time and few games that needs to take place before you're getting to you know, homeostasis in a way. So the Jazz are also allowing the second fewest corner threes. Uh, and those are the ones that teams want. They want the corner three. It's shorter. You, know, you usually are able to be a little bit more wide open. Um, and you know, by virtue of the backboard kind of being that line for you, um, you know, it, it's just it's just a much more efficient shot. Teams want it, and the Jazz aren't giving it up. The Jazz are also allowing the fewest catch and shoot threes, and again, those are the ones teams want. They don't want their players generally dribble, 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 and step back three or dribble, dribble, pull up. Instead, they want to get get somebody moving and as they get the ball thrown to them they're able to catch and shoot those are the ones you want those are the most efficient and the jazz aren't allowing them and the jazz are also allowing the third fewest wide open threes okay where someone has six or more feet of space the jazz just aren't allowing those either so the process is really really good like that's the kind of process you'd expect for somebody who is in the top five of uh, lowest uh, opponent three-point percentage. Now let's look into some, some three-point talent. How have the Jazz fared against other teams' three-point talent? Have we faced good three-point shooting teams? Well, if we look at bottom 10 
uh, teams in in three point uh, talent. Okay, uh, Houston we played twice. Memphis we played twice. Dallas we played once. The Lakers we played twice, and Washington we played once. So eight teams we played eight games against bottom ten three point talent. And when I say three point talent, I looked at the past three years and said, how much volume and how efficient are you taking threes for the last three years? Okay, now put them on the right rosters for this year, and how are we looking? Okay, so we played eight games against bottom 10 talent teams, but Denver stroked it against us. Okay, they hit 40% of their threes one night. Memphis did as well, um, and the Lakers also did both times. Uh, or excuse me, not, yeah, yeah, both times. They, they, really, they really shot the three ball well against us. So that, that, you know, we are playing a lot of poor, you know, talent teams, but you know, some of them had good nights against us still. Uh, we played middle 10 teams. Uh, we played um, uh, Denver twice. We played Atlanta and Philly. Uh, those are all middle 10 talent teams. And then top 10 talent teams, we played Minnesota, New Orleans, and Los Angeles Clippers. Those are top 10 talent teams. So clearly the talent hasn't quite been there. Uh, we've been kind of middle to low uh, three-point talent against but our process is really good, and it's not like we haven't played any talented teams. So yeah, I agree that opposing three-point shooting is going to creep up some more, but somebody's got to be the, the lowest team. And right now, we're not the lowest team in the NBA in, in three-point percentage allowed, and we're not too far, just six made threes away from last year's low in, uh, in the Boston Celtics. What are the upcoming games? Well, New York is 15th in three-point talent. Phoenix is 19th, and Portland is 14th in, in uh, three-point talent. Right now, the Jazz are 8th in, in three-point shooting talent, and you can see that. We've got Conley, Markinen, Olenek, Beasley, Jordan Clarkson. We've got a lot of three-point uh, shooters who are really talented. So I do think it's going to creep up, but it's not the crazy outlier that some have made it out to be, frankly. All right, the fifth and final lukewarm take. Our starting lineup is really, really fun. Uh, Conley and Clarkson and Markinen, Olenek and Vanderbilt, they're a really, really fun group, but they're kind of really only an average group, frankly. And you think about it, no star, lots of good, playing a modern style, that's a lot of fun, but contributes to kind of only average results. If you look at Cleaning the Glass, which is a great stat website, and you look at the top lineups, five-man lineup groups, that have played 100-plus minutes, the best NBA lineup is, predictably, Embiid, Maxi, and Philadelphia without Harden. They're at plus 33.4 points. That means they're outscoring opponents by 33 points per 100 possessions, or akin to a game, uh, when they're on the floor. Okay, they are absolutely destroying people. And we saw it destroy the Jazz the other night. Okay, the reason the game was close is because our bench made up for what our starters could not. The NBA worst lineup that has 100 plus minutes is uh, Paul George and the Clippers without Kawhi Leonard, minus 30.5. They're getting outscored by 30 points per 100 possessions or per game. You, know, you can kind of think of it that way, except those lineups don't play a full game, so that's why you say per 100 possessions. So what's the Jazz lineup? 
the single lineup that the Jazz have in that list of 100 plus lineups is our Conley, Clarkson, Markinen, Vanderbilt, Olenek lineup, that starter group. What are we at? A minus 0.1, meaning that per 100 possessions, we're right even. We're right even. That's in the 38th percentile, and that's played 280 possessions. Our starting lineup is really, really fun, but it's only average. And we've got a really, really solid bench. And that's why I'm kind of thinking, kind of going back to the previous topic of, you know, this idea with Jimmy Butler of trading some of those, you know, really solid bench guys for a starter and moving a current starter to the bench. And at that point, you vault the starters to a new level. And although the bench has to come down a bit, you're playing your bench far less time than you are playing your starters. You need your starters to be really good. And I think that deal uh, accomplishes it more. So, so far, starting lineup is fun, but only average. And to be a real contender, that can't happen. Well, thank you so much for listening and joining the Jabber Jazz podcast today. If you like what we're doing, uh, here's how you can support us. First, subscribe to the podcast on YouTube or your podcatcher. Follow us on Twitter at Jabber underscore Jazz. Uh, also, hit up our YouTube channel and subscribe there to, to watch videos, highlights of the podcast, and game previews. Uh, leave us a review on YouTube or a comment um, in the podcatcher and score some Jabber Jazz merchandise via our store. The link is in the description below. T-shirts, hoodies, hats, and they really go along nicely with the Jazz rebrand. Well, now that we've talked some jazz, let's leave you with some sounds of jazz.